Let us pray. Almighty God, once more, plant your word within us and cause us to be changed by it. For without that change, we cannot come near to you. Without the work of Jesus working in us, we cannot have faith. And so we pray, Father, for you to cause that work to be done in us, that this word would dwell within us, that your spirit would plant it deep within, and that you would continually water it, that it might grow forth in the way that you desire, and that you would make us into the people you desire us and want us to be, that we might in Christ become those pleasing servants before you, and your pleasing children. All this we do ask through Christ our Lord. Amen. So it was sometime in the spring of 1999, I think. At the time, I was working at Food Lion and had been made a front-end assistant, basically the person in charge of all the cashiers and bag boys that they used to have. doesn't seem like anyone has bag boys that actually help you with your groceries anymore. And also being a bookkeeper, I was in charge of counting down the cash registers, closing out the sales for the day, and making the deposit and preparing the deposit. I'd been promoted to that position a number of months prior to that, that springtime in 1999, and had been promised a raise from my manager. However, that raise never came. He kept putting it off, even when the district manager had come two or three times to visit the store and check in on things. My, my boss had been like, well, I'll, I'll talk to him about it, and then never get around to talking to him about it. And so I was getting pretty frustrated. Well, eventually the time came when that manager rolled out and a new manager came in to be in charge of the store. And I heard that the district manager was coming again to visit to see how he was doing with the store and make sure that everything was on the up and up. And so I went and talked to my boss and was like, hey, the previous manager had promised to give me a raise because I'd just been a bag boy and was promoted to being a front end assistant and being in charge of all this stuff. And I'm not making any more money than what I used to. And I'm working myself to the bone here, guy. So he said, all right, I'll talk to him. He's coming tomorrow. Come back in a few days and check in with me. And next time you're here and we should be able to get something done. So the district manager came and went. I came into work. A few days after that, and so I went up to my boss and was like, so how did things go? What happened? And he looked at me very intently and very seriously, and he just simply said, well, I wasn't able to get you a raise to $5.90 an hour like I promised. In that moment, he could see the absolute dejection on my face because I wasn't hiding it. I was absolutely crushed. But before I could say anything, he held up his hands because I got you a raise to five to six dollars and ten cents an hour instead. At which I almost shouted, "You're kidding! What?" <laughs> you can tell it's been a long time ago because six ten an hour isn't much these days. But twenty two years ago, that was some serious bread and butter you could do with that. And so I was excited. My boss had come through above and beyond. Instead of giving me a fifteen cent raise, he got me a thirty five cent raise. He had seen my work, he had seen my efforts, he had seen the injustice of my previous boss not wanting to give me my raise, but just simply let me keep doing what I was doing. And so I was excited, I was ready to keep working, and that urged me on. That pushed me even further to work as hard as I could to show that I deserved that raise. And so I worked at Foodline until they let me go. 
And I was excited to work for him. I loved doing that job. I was happy to do it. And in that job, one of the things I've learned through all of my jobs, because they were all in retail, nearly every job I've had was in retail, save for one or two, is that it's all about serving the customer. It's all about serving the other person. So my job as that front-end assistant wasn't just bossing people around. It was serving my employees, making sure that they were getting the things that they needed, that they got changed for their tills, that they had someone who responded quickly to their needs for voiding items or fixing their registers or whatever happened, helping them get checks cash that came through that were too much for them to, for them to bring through their register. I had to quickly respond to them, and I was happy to do that. It meant going out and helping the customers find the things that they needed and helping get coupons and things like that figured out. It was all about serving the customer, not about me getting to lord it over everyone that I was their boss there on the front end for a little while, but it was about me serving them. And I had a boss who was willing to recognize that I was doing a pretty good job at that. And that was good because I was striving to do that. In order for me to live in that service, I was given some honor and glory from my boss. He gave me that raise. He saw to it that I got it, and he saw to it that I got the work hours I needed because he knew I was a good worker. But none of that would have happened had I not been working humbly, had I not been striving to serve my employee, serve the other employees, had I not been striving to do my job of service, none of that would have happened. And there we see something in this a little piece of the kingdom right there, that the reception of that glory and honor above all means the humbling of oneself to the service of all others. If one is to receive glory and honor at the end, one must humble himself in the here and now in order to serve in the here and now. And that's what we're seeing happen here in this gospel reading today. James and John are approaching Jesus and they want all the glory. They want all the honor for themselves. They want everything. They want to be lifted up to the right hand and the left hand of Jesus in the kingdom. But they haven't done anything. They haven't done anything to prove their worth, to demonstrate that they should receive that. They just simply go up to Jesus and say that's what they want. And the context matters so much in this section. Beginning in chapter 8, we have the declaration of Peter to Jesus that Jesus is the Messiah. And immediately Jesus tells him, I'm going to die in Jerusalem. I'm going to be put to death by the Pharisees, by the Sadducees, by the leaders there in Jerusalem, and then I will be raised back from the dead. And Peter didn't like that a bit. He didn't like the idea of Jesus dying. And that's where you get the famous rebuking passage of get thee behind me, Satan. But then a little bit later, over in Mark 9, Verses 30 through 32, Jesus says it again. I'm going to Jerusalem in order that I would be killed, but I will be raised from the dead. And the disciples were confused. And once more, he says it before we get to this little vignette about James and John. As they're traveling toward Jerusalem, Jesus says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Mark doesn't even bother telling us that the disciples were still confused, that they still weren't getting it, because he immediately turns around and tells another story about how they don't get it. The second time, the first time Jesus said he was going to die, Peter confronted him and said, no, no, no. And Jesus had to rebuke him. 
The second time Jesus told them he was going to die but rise again, they start having an argument about who was the greatest disciple, who was serving Jesus the best. And here the third time, Jesus tells them that he's going to die and yet be raised back to life. James and John sneak away to him and try to get him to lift them up and prove that they are the greatest. Every time the disciples hear about Jesus about to die, and they don't understand, they turn around and try to prove something about themselves. They try to prove that they are the greatest of the disciples and that they deserve some glory and some honor that is above and beyond what they should have. They keep seeking what they shouldn't. And here James and John epitomize that. They epitomize that seeking what they shouldn't seek. And they want him to put them up there with him at his right hand and at his left hand. But I love how they approach it there in verse 35. They came up to him and they said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Don't you love how they try to corner Jesus with their request? They come up to him and are like, Hey, whatever we ask, you're going to do it for us, right? Reminds me of little kids sometimes. You're going to give this to me when I ask for it, right? They try to corner you, try to get you, paint you into that corner and make you do what they want you to do. And here, that's what they're kind of doing to Jesus. We want you to do for us whatever you ask. Makes me think of King Herod and Salome. When she danced so well for him that he said, I'll give you anything that you want. Whatever you ask, I'll give it to you. He put himself into a corner and she went for the jugular of John the Baptist. She wanted his head on the plate. And here the disciples try to do that to Jesus. They try to wiggle him into that. But he avoids it. He's just like, well, tell me what you're thinking. What do you want me to do before I give you any answer about whether or not I will fulfill it? He recognizes their seeking. He knows their hearts. He knows that they're desiring something that they shouldn't have. And they tell him, grant us to sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. When you receive honor in your kingdom, let us sit there with you on your right and your left to be ranked highest above all, better than everyone else, more glorious than everyone else, saved for you. We simply want to be there at the top. So they're desiring, they're seeking after that which they can't have ultimately. And so Jesus tells them, you don't know what you're asking. You want to bite off more than you can chew. They're seeking to bite off everything, to get a hold of everything for themselves. And he reveals to them just what it means to sit with him in glory. He asks them, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? He confronts them because he's just told them what's going to happen to him. He has said, I'm going to die in Jerusalem. I'm going to be beaten and mocked. I will be condemned. I will be delivered to the Gentiles. I'm going to be flogged within moments of death. And I will be put on a cross and die. That's what's going to happen to me in Jerusalem. That is the cup that I'm about to drink. That is the baptism with which that I am about to receive. I'm willingly approaching this situation. I'm moving toward it, and I know it's going to happen, and it's going to be done upon me. Can you do that too? Can you do the very thing that I'm about to do? And they are very sure of themselves. They say, we are able. We can do all of that. We can go with you and be condemned and beaten and delivered over to the Gentiles. 
we can do that too. And Jesus said to them, he responds to this so graciously, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. He tells them, you will drink the cup I will drink. You will be baptized with the baptism I'm going to be baptized with. You're going to receive these very treatments that I have received. Yes, you will. They will have to be active in their faith because Jesus has been active in his faith. That drinking of the cup is him willingly taking upon himself the wrath of God for us. Him willingly walking and having sin placed upon him. He is acting for us, becoming our substitute willingly, having placed upon himself all that we deserve. And to be baptized is this is being done to him. It could be considered his passive obedience of simply receiving the punishment, receiving the stripes, receiving our sin upon himself and the death that we deserve. He is being active by going to the cross, willingly desiring to save his people. But he's also being abused at that cross because of our sins. He is being beaten and put to death, mocked and flogged, spat upon for us. That is his cup and his baptism there at the cross as he is entering into his glorious redemption of the world. He was approaching Jerusalem in the full knowledge of what was to take place. And he tells James and John, you're going to have these things done to you too. You will have to drink the cup that I drink. You will have to approach your life intentionally, in faith, trusting the Father. You will have to walk into situations where you will be assaulted, where you will be attacked, where you will be hated and despised by the crowds. And you will be imprisoned. You will be jailed. You will be beaten. You will be flogged. You will be abused and spat upon by the people. These things will be done to you. But I can't let you sit at my right or my left. I can't let you be there because others have been appointed to be there. Others who will be appointed to be there when I enter into my glory. And I love going over to the Gospel of John to figure out what exactly is it for Jesus to enter into his glory. And John points us to the cross. John first and foremost points us at the cross as being the throne of Christ's glory. For it is there that he reaches the epitome of perfect honor toward God's people. Perfect honor in fulfilling God's promises. Right there, he fulfills everything that is necessary for our salvation. He takes our sins away that we might be forgiven. He takes it all upon himself so that we can come to the Father. There he enters into his glory. And who was at his right and left at that moment? The two thieves that were also being crucified. One who received Jesus as he was, as the Savior of the world, who recognized his Messiahship and recognized and caught a glimpse of the redemption that was occurring in that moment. And a thief on his other who just derided him and mocked him just like everyone else becoming representative of the last day and the last judgment when the sheep, those who have faith in Jesus and acted on that faith, are at his right hand and the goats who heard about Jesus but never did what he called them to do, never believed in him, will be at his left. It has been appointed 
that those who are faithful and have faith and trust in Christ will be at his right hand and those who have rejected him will be at his left. That is already set up and appointed and Jesus can't change who will be there. He can't change that for James and John. But he will let them partake of his cup and partake of his baptism. And so we see what Jesus does here. He turns everything on its head. He turns the disciples, James and John's desire for glory into suffering. They want to be glorified, but he says you have to suffer instead because I'm going to suffer. But that doesn't mean you won't receive glory and honor at the end, but it'll be a different kind of glory and honor. It's not going to be one that you think about right now. It will be one that will be changed, that will be renewed, that will be molded into the kind of glory and honor that God desires to give, that God receives from us when we turn to him. <clears throat> they sought after that which they shouldn't have, and they tried to bite off more than they could chew. But Jesus revealed to them and reveals to us that it's only by serving that we can discover that which we truly seek. Serving by the Son is accomplished for us. All the other disciples heard about what James and John were trying to do, and they became infuriated. They were angry. They were frustrated. They were mad. Can't you see the picture? I could see Peter just being so frustrated and upset right there. Aren't I the top of the disciples? I'm the one who answers for us. I'm the one who goes to Jesus for us. I'm the one who's in charge here. Why are you trying to usurp my authority over you? I'm the one who declared Jesus to be the Son of God and the Messiah on our behalf, of course. I can see that picture of them being so indignant with James and John. But instead of Jesus rebuking all of them once more, he gives them a brief teaching. He calls them to himself and he says, You know the Gentiles who consider themselves rulers lord it over everyone, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. You are not going to be so great and glorious that you get to exercise authority. You're not going to abuse the authority that you're going to receive through me. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. We are reduced to serving. We are reduced to being amongst God's people and doing what he tells us to do and serving the people of God. That is what Jesus calls us to. That's what he calls his disciples to, that they must give of themselves. William Hendrickson says that Jesus is saying that in the kingdom over which he reigns, greatness is obtained by pursuing a course of action which is the exact opposite of that which is followed in the unbelieving world. Greatness consists in self-giving, in the pouring out of the will and service to others for the glory of God. To be great means to love. James and John and the rest wanted to be great in the eyes of the world, but they weren't ever going to get to be that. They were following a peasant Messiah. They were following a Messiah, a king who would go to his death. But they wanted to be great in the eyes of the world. But they can't have that. To follow Jesus means to become like Jesus. He calls them to servants, to service. He calls them to be servants. He calls them to slavery to be slaves of all. To look at the opportunity to serve and to love. 
I like how Martin Luther puts it. He says, a Christian man is the freest Lord of all and subject to none. A Christian man is the most dutiful servant of all and subject to everyone. The Christian lives in a paradox of being master and slave. It sounds a little bit like Jesus' life. The Son of God, the creator of all things, comes down from heaven, not to lord it over everyone, but to serve all, to die on the cross for the sins of the world. On one hand, Jesus is perfectly free of everything. He is perfectly free of everyone. He is subject to no one but himself as God. But he becomes a servant. He becomes a slave. He goes to death for us. And that's what he tells the disciples that he's going to do. There in verse 45, the epitome of this passage, for even the Son of Man came not to serve, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That is the, that is the foundation of this serving that Christ calls his disciples to. He doesn't call them to blind servanthood. He doesn't call them to blind slavery as if it's earning their way into his good graces. He calls them, them and us to service because he himself came to be a servant. He himself gave his life as a ransom for many. He gave himself up on the cross in service to the world. The Lord of glory is the Lord of all things, and yet he takes on the perfect form of a servant for the sake of others. And that is what Christ calls his disciples to and calls us to, based on the foundation of what he is doing for us. What we heard in Isaiah 53 is focused on the actions of that suffering servant, suffering for the sins of the people, suffering for God's people. And in that suffering, he finds satisfaction. He finds a fulfillment of all things, and he sees all that will be brought to the Father through his work. Likewise, in Hebrews 4, we hear about how we are all naked and exposed to God the Father, that we must give an account of all of our wrongdoings. But we have a great high priest who has suffered all things, who has passed through the heavens, and so we hold fast to him. We hold fast to this high priest who has passed through the heavens, who has died and been raised, who is able to sympathize with our struggles, with our weaknesses. And because he is our high priest, we can draw near to the Father. We can draw near to this perfect Lord of glory who sees our sins, who sees us exposed for what we are in and of ourselves. And we can draw near and receive grace. We can receive mercy and we can call out to him to change us, to renew us, to make us more and more like our Lord and Master Jesus. And that is what Jesus calls us to do. We can't fulfill what he tells us to do. We can't fulfill this obligation of being a perfect servant to everyone, to being a perfect slave to all. It is only through his forgiveness and his renewal of our hearts and our minds that we begin on that path towards service, towards serving everyone that he brings towards us toward pointing them to Christ, toward loving them and pouring ourselves out for them. And that pouring out extends into every area of our life. It's not just to those people that we like, but it's to all those people we come into contact with through our jobs, through our relationships, through our neighborhoods. In many and sundry ways, we call, are called to serve and to love and to care for those around us. 
And to do that rightly, it takes the grace of God and the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, guiding us, applying the callings and the commandments of God to our hearts and our minds so that those will overflow into our actions. And we will be reshaped and renewed the more we draw near to Jesus. The more we look toward his servanthood for us, the more we will be changed by that servanthood for us. If we don't look to Jesus continually, we will lose sight of the service we are called to. We will lose sight of the work of Jesus for us and pursue our own selfish endeavors and our selfish ends like James and John were doing here. Their minds were on the work of Jesus for them. Their minds were on the work that they could do to earn glory, to earn greatness, to fulfill their own wants and desires. Their eyes weren't on Jesus, and so they couldn't be servants to all that they encountered. They wanted all the honor and glory for themselves without any of the humbling that is necessary to receive the right kind of honor and glory from the Father. One must humble himself to servanthood to live in that honor and glory that is bestowed in Christ. For that honor and glory that is bestowed in Christ will change us completely because Jesus has accomplished all for us and become the high priest that will save us the high priest who, was, who is our ransom. And so may we, as we go out to seek to serve and love those that God puts before us, look to Christ, our perfect high priest, our perfect example of servanthood, and to embrace his sacrifice for us so that we can then sacrifice ourselves for others. Our sacrifice isn't one that will redeem and save people from hell, but it is a sacrifice that will draw them nearer to Jesus the one who did sacrifice himself to redeem us from hell and death and the devil. Jesus will redeem us and work in us and make us into his perfect people. So may we receive that perfection that he gives to us by looking to him in faith and trust and praying for that to be worked out in us more and more. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.